Good morning. Uh, for the lesson this morning, John is going to be giving out a handout. Um, this lesson particularly, I thought would be very, very helpful to just have the information on paper as well. Um, just a word of caution, though, I think it would be kind of overwhelming if you have a paper that you're following and a board that you're following and words that you're verbally following, right? Um, so it might be helpful, just maybe treat the paper as like, if you get lost in the lesson, kind of find out where you are, or just information to keep to remember the lesson or do what Scott's doing and just hold the paper in front of you. Um, so, because this lesson is going to be an overview of the book of Numbers. Um, next year, I'm going to be teaching one lesson per month on the book of Numbers. And we're going to be talking about just an overview and the value of studying a book like Numbers. Um, so obviously, I didn't have room to fit an introduction lesson next year. Um, this isn't going to be like studying each chapter in detail. This is going to be a lot of kind of generally telling either the, the stories and the events and then drawing out a couple of lessons from those events um, or just the laws and regulations and pulling out a couple of lessons from the, the uh, area that we're going to be in generally. But so this is kind of an outline of where we're going to be next year um, each month. So like the number in the middle, it's not January 1st through the 4th, it's January and then chapters 1 through 4 uh, and so on in the book of Numbers. Um, so again, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be overviewing first when does the book of Numbers take place and that's kind of going to be where there's going to be a lot of information and I'll try to go through it um, slowly and methodically, but we're going to be first looking at when does this book take place what generally is happening in the book of Numbers. So I'll try to give a, a really general overview of the book uh, to prepare us for next year. Um, and then after that, we'll be looking at some lessons from the New Testament that help us look back and see great value in really looking through an Old Testament book like this and trying to find New Testament applications for us and how that's really what God intended ultimately from these books. All right, so when are we? Um, this is a timeline that I did a lesson on a few months ago. And I have handouts for this, by the way, if you'd like a handout of this. Um, but in this timeline on the bottom in purple, those are the historical books of the Bible that are in chronological order. So you have 17 Old Testament books that if you start from Genesis, generally starting in Genesis, the first 17 books of the Bible, they are in chronological order all the way through the book of Esther. Then you have the books of Wisdom, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and the books of the prophets, and those take place kind of within that chronological historical narrative, right? And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John there at the end, and all that's kind of faded out because that's ahead of where we are. Um, but you have five books of the New Testament that are historical narrative books as well, right? So where we are in Numbers is we are in the fourth book of the Bible. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And just to kind of summarize, um, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, you have the creation, and in the beginning, we have Adam and Eve. And after man sinned and was separated from God, um, the next major event that takes place, the next catastrophic event, is the flood that happens where God delivers Noah and his family, and God makes a covenant with Noah. Then the next major event is God divides the languages of mankind, scatters them all over the world, 
And then God makes another covenant with Abraham. And by this covenant, God creates the nation of Israel. So after God made a covenant with Abraham, the promise was that through him, nations would come from him and through him, all the world would ultimately be blessed and reconciled through his seed. And so we see that more immediately happening. Abraham, his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. And so Abraham's grandson, Jacob, was renamed Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons, now Abraham's great-grandchildren, become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel that God delivers through Moses. So on the paper under section A, I've got some, you know, just general things with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, that Genesis is really the beginning. It's the beginning of God creating mankind, but establishing his first covenants with mankind. In Exodus, we see God delivering his nation and dwelling in his nation. So the beginning of Genesis, God delivers his nation out of Egypt and out of slavery. But then after that, he dwells within and among his nation. In Leviticus, we see God establishing a law with this nation. And in the book of Numbers, we see God disciplining and developing his nation. Now, when are we? Or, yeah, still when are we? A little bit more specifically here. Um, So these are dates that are in these verses. So I'm not going to ask you to turn in your Bibles here, but you can if you'd like to. But these are dates as they're worded in these scriptures. So in Exodus 12, verse 18... God begins Israel's calendar year for the very first time. So first year, first month, the 14th day of that month, Israel leaves Egypt after they celebrate their first Passover. Israel's first year, this can be kind of confusing, but their calendar year doesn't begin in January. It actually begins somewhere between between March and April. So Israel's year, the Passover, actually begins in the springtime, the beginning of spring. The second scripture I have there is Exodus 19, verse 1, and another date is given there. So now this is a month and a half later, so a fairly short time frame. After Israel comes out of Egypt, after a month and a half, they arrive at Mount Sinai. This is where God comes down in fire, smoke, thunder, and God enters into his covenant formally with the nation of Israel. So that happens a month and a half later. Still at Mount Sinai, at the very end of Exodus... Um, This is now seven months later. Moses has gone up to the mountain now to speak with God multiple times. They've been given initial laws. They've entered into their covenant with God. But really the key moment at the end of Exodus, so chapter 40 is the very last chapter, they build the tabernacle, which was a place in Israel where God would dwell among his people. It was a very expensive, very beautiful tent structure. And so this would have been a place where they would come to offer sacrifices to God and where the priests would be working. It was like the the epicenter of the nation of Israel. The tabernacle is set up at the end of Exodus. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, at the very beginning of the book of Numbers, it's only a month later. So Leviticus only takes place within a month's time frame. So time is very dramatically slowing down now. Um, The whole book of Genesis encompasses thousands of years, 
And once we start getting to the end of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, time is really coming to a halt and we're pausing to really get some breathing room as God establishes the nation. So seven months, or rather one month later, one month later, still at Sinai now, still at the mountain, still where the fire and the smoke is right above them, Israel for the first time is formally numbered. And the number comes out to be about 603,000 men uh, from 20 years old and upward, not including women and children. Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. So now this is 19 days later. So Numbers chapter 1, all the way through Numbers chapter 10, is 19 days. They haven't left Sinai. They're not moving at all. They haven't even begun wandering in the wilderness, at least after Sinai yet. 19 days. Israel, for the first time since coming to Sinai, they begin to leave to go to the land that God promised them. So a fairly short time frame that's encompassed here. And again, in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, is the very first time they actually leave Mount Sinai since getting there. So very generally, what happens within the book of Numbers? So just as kind of already uh, discussed, chapters 1 through 10 encompasses only 19 days, so not even a month's time frame. This is where they're, again, they're formally numbered. The Israelites are numbered. The Levites who would be working and the priests, they would be numbered. They're given more laws and regulations related to holiness among the nation. Chapter 11 through 21, this is probably where you may know some events that actually happen in Numbers. This is where in chapter 13, they come to the border of Canaan, the land God promised Abraham. They refuse to go in because they're intimidated by the people inside of the land. And so God then punishes the nation by uh, sentencing them to 40 years wandering in the wilderness. So uh, after chapter 14 begins the 40 years that they would be wandering in the wilderness. Here you get the complaining about food and water You get them rebelling against Moses, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So again, most of what you know about Exodus is in these chapters. I want you to notice something, though. Numbers is 36 chapters. Ten chapters, they weren't even wandering yet. And only ten chapters encompasses the 38 years that focuses on their actual wandering. Only ten chapters. And then 14 more chapters deals with 11 months where, again, they're not moving at this point. They're actually paused at Moab, at Kadesh, where they would be remaining. This is where the book of Deuteronomy is preached. Deuteronomy is Moses's like five farewell sermons before they enter the land, and Moses dies on a mountain. And so that's 10, 14, that's 24 chapters of the book of Numbers that is outside of what you may more normally know happens within the book. And I really want to spend time in this next year drawing out what what I think are really incredible, really powerful, relevant lessons that we find in those sections that we may not really be interested in studying as much and can seem to be maybe more of a dry reading. Um, And so I want to just kind of help us see the value of every section of God's word. And so I want to end the lesson looking very briefly 
at the value of this book. So whenever I'm like doing a series on an Old Testament book, usually I will introduce um, that series by bringing up these points. So if you've heard me teach through an Old Testament book, most of this will, will be very familiar. So I would like you to turn in your Bibles to these places. Start with 2 Timothy chapter 3. So to me, these are just really good anchoring scriptures just to keep in mind with thinking, okay, what is the value of the Old Testament to a New Testament Christian, right? So when Jesus died, Jesus brought the new covenant. The new covenant began with Jesus' death. And so from the book of Acts and forward, what we're seeing is the New Testament church, not the nation of Israel physically anymore. And so we can kind of think, well, you know, why would we read the Old Testament anymore if we're not bound to those laws or practices anymore? And so when we look at these scriptures, we're able to reflect back and understand how we see value in Old Testament books of the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. So this is Paul uh, writing to Timothy, a preacher, evangelist. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, first of all, Timothy, when it says from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, what writings would Paul be referencing there? You know, when Paul met Timothy, you know, that was a time when, you know, Timothy being a half-Jew, his mother was Jewish, his dad was a Greek, you know, but from childhood, Timothy would have been more aware of the Old Testament scriptures, these New Testament letters were still being circulated and shared among Christians. So really what New Testament Christians were doing is they were finding their present identity through prophecies, through promises, and through events that reflect who we are to be now more perfectly with God. And so in verse 14, or rather verse 15, where he references the sacred writings that give you wisdom that leads to salvation, Paul's referencing the Old Testament scriptures, things like the book of Numbers. Um, I have on the paper, I don't have it on the board, Luke 24, 37. Um, one of the most helpful things I think Jesus ever said about the valley of the Old Testament, Jesus said there, then beginning from w with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained the, th the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So when Jesus rose from the dead, how did he help his disciples have more faith and more understanding in what had happened to him and the life that he lived, the death that he died, his rising from the dead? He walked them through the Old Testament scriptures and he helped them understand how those Old Testament scriptures were ultimately pointing to his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection. Another helpful verse with this is John 3:14. Jesus just directly references an event from the wilderness in the book of Numbers. In John 3.14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's Numbers chapter 21, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
So these things are really helpful because in Numbers 21, it's a fairly short event. It's not nearly as focused on as when they complained about food and water, when they rebelled against Moses and didn't go into the promised land. Um, it's a fairly concise little event in Numbers 21. And on my own reading, I don't read about Moses lifting the serpent up. And well, by the way, let me, the people grumbled and complained and God sent fiery serpents like snakes or something in the midst of the camp and they asked Moses to pray to God on their behalf. God said, okay, set up a bronze serpent and anyone who looks at the bronze serpent, they will live, they will not die. Um, so because of the sting of their sin, they saw a need for Moses to intercede for them on God's behalf to provide salvation. And so Jesus references this. Anyway, I wouldn't read that ultimately on my own initiative and think, wow, this teaches me about Jesus. And man, wow, doesn't this just remind you of Jesus' death on the cross? I mean, it's right there. That's, that's not how I would read it. So again, these, these references are just anchoring points that I'm not giving the Old Testament enough credit. I'm generally not giving enough credit to the fact that God in his infinite wisdom, in his incredible mind, was always organizing by his providence and by his all-knowing mind of where he was going in his purpose, God was always orchestrating events and scriptures that would ultimately help Christians understand Jesus and their identity with Jesus ultimately. That's how Jesus led people to see the Old Testament scriptures. Turn to Romans 15, verses 1 through 13. This is another just really helpful anchoring point. Um, Romans 15, verses 1 through 13. And I want you to notice particularly, this is going to be in verse 4. I want you to particularly notice these things that Paul says that I think are somewhat easy to overlook and just not really pause and really appreciate the impact of what's being said. Because in verse 4, he's going to say, whatever was written in earlier times, so he's referencing the Old Testament scriptures there, was written for our instruction. So let's read this, and I, just, I want you to catch that in verse 4. Romans 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our, our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing, your, sing to your name. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.
By the way, verse 13, when he talks about the God of hope filling us with all joy and peace and believing by the power of Holy Spirit, I think that's really building and very connected back to what he says in verse 4 and what he says comes from these things in verse 5. Where does perseverance and hope, where does that really come from ultimately for a Christian? Verse 4 again. Whatever being written in the earlier times, written so that we could gain perseverance, encouragement, and have hope through the scriptures. A couple of brief points here that I want to think about with this. This might sound strange, um, nearly unrelated, but I want to try to make this make sense, that with these things, there is a unique value to reading the Bible in the primary way God himself, in his mind, chose to write it. What I mean by that is they're books. They're books that have intentional structure. God designed intentional structure. And I think this relates to seeing hope and perseverance in the scripture. But I want to kind of maybe mention why I bring this up. I think it can be very easy to be in the habit of just reading things in the Bible. So like, well, I want to know more about marriage. So I'll look at, you know, where do I find marriage in the Bible? Or I want to know more about kindness. So where do I see the word kindness in the Bible? And those are really good things, right? Um, But do you see the danger when we're only looking at things in the Bible and never really just reading it through the way that God intended and designed? Because there is a tapestry woven throughout books of the Bible of God's character being revealed in ways that we wouldn't just ourselves be interested in looking at. There's a lot of things in Numbers that we need to be confronted with where you're never going to think, you know, Numbers chapter 7 when for about 78 verses, the leaders of Israel give the same sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again, and it literally is saying the exact same thing 12 different times, I don't think a person of their own initiative can say, that's the chapter that I want to study today, right? There's a lot of things in the Bible that it's from God, it is revealing the overall character of God, and we're never going to be confronted with it or have the balance that we ought to have an understanding of God unless we're reading God persevering in revealing himself and demonstrating his character in the way he's chosen to write it. Think about this too. If someone wrote a book, would it be fair to only pick things out of that book instead of just reading the book? And don't you think if you were going to pick things out of the book to study, that if you were familiar with the book itself and the story and the characters and the events, that you would probably get more out of the things in the book specifically that you may be more interested in. And so I just really want to encourage you that we need to be reading books of the Bible. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to discourage topical studies or studying words. I'm not trying to discourage that. I just think it's easy to get caught up in that. And another thing is, I think we need to be aware of ways we can get discouraged in reading books. So we may see things that confuse us. We may hit dry sections that we don't understand. We don't know its value. And so we lose our motivation and we stop, right? Another way that we learn perseverance, I think, in verse 5, or verse 4 and verse 5, is we learn to read God's word and we learn the discipline of reading books of the Bible and understanding God wrote this. This is from God. This isn't just man writing nonsense and wasting time. The same God that inspired John at the end of John's gospel to say, you know, 
the events of Jesus' life, if they were all written down, the world couldn't contain all the books that would be written. And so John is saying, I've been precise. I have written things for good reason. That same God that inspired John to make sure he mentioned he's not wasting time, he's not giving fluff, is the same God who wrote the book of Numbers and wrote Numbers chapter 7, the 12 leaders giving the same sacrifices again and again and again. So I just want to encourage you, there is a great value in persevering in reading books of the Bible, sometimes not letting yourself get bogged down by what you don't understand, but just really just trying to see things play out, getting familiar with the story, getting familiar with things that you wouldn't study on your own. There's an intentional structure and there's so much gained when we see the balance of God's character as it is revealed through his whole word. Another thing with Numbers particularly, so look at the context of chapter 15. You know, Paul's not just talking about hope in a very general sense of, I just need to hold on to my beliefs in God without letting go. Look at verse 1 and 2. This is about the strong bearing with the weaknesses of the weak who have no strength. It's learning to please others for their edification, not ourselves, that we can be more like Jesus in verse 3. How do we learn that? In Numbers, we see God's love, his perseverance, and his hope. We see God humbling himself to have unity with a people who are constantly rebelling against him and putting him to the test. And so ultimately, it's not Moses who is the main character of the book of Numbers. It's not the nation of Israel that are the main character of the book of Numbers. It's God's character shining vibrantly through the book of Numbers. We see God's humble love. We see him lowering himself. We see him listening to the nation and hearing them out. We see him disciplining them with wisdom. We see him having ambitious hope with the nation and never losing that. And what that does is, if we are striving to imitate God as our beloved Father, if we're seeing God and his character more clearly in numbers, that then equips us to imitate his character more effectively, with more understanding, more humility. And so that leads us back to Ephesians 5 verse 1, where we're called to imitate God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ has loved us. So ultimately, reading numbers should equip us to love one another much more diligently, with more patience, more humility. In verse um, 7, to accept one another, to have unity with each other, and to understand how this is God's purpose and intention. One verse I would like to go back to, Numbers 23. This to me is maybe the climactic point of the book of Numbers. I want to kind of set the scene for this. Um, everything's been going wrong. Israel did not go into the land. They rebelled against God. They're complaining all the time, seemingly. They've rebelled against Moses and just again and again and again. And it just, it just seems like they're withering away in their sin and it's horrible. I mean, you read it, and it's almost like by this point, you'd be laughing at the nation. Well, in Numbers chapter 22, things, for the very first time, things zoom out, and you're no longer in the nation of Israel anymore. Now we're looking at Israel through the perspective of Moabites. You've got Balak, king of Moab, and he calls Balaam a prophet to curse Israel. And Here's God's opportunity. 
This nation's been worthless. They've been testing his anger. They've been constantly rebelling against him. Curse him. And yet we find at a distance, God is sheltering his people from harm beyond what they comprehend. Look at verse 18. This is God turning Balaam's curse into a blessing. Balaam's intending to curse Israel. God is not letting him do it. Look what he says, verse 18. Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Now listen carefully. Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. Verse 21, when you feel the momentum and the weight of the sin and rebellion of Israel, this is shocking. Verse 21, he has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among him. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them, like the horns of a wild ox. There is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel, what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. How long would it take for God to ultimately fulfill these words? I mean, the words are amazing enough that Israel is a disaster. You're reading this and you're like, what hope is there? And God says, that's all I see. I don't see anything but hope. A king is going to arise. God's purpose will be fulfilled. God is commanded to bless and nobody can revoke that. It would be over 1,400 years before Christ would come. We lose hope far too quickly in each other. At the slightest sign of argument or Boy, we don't, we don't think the same way or, well, you've mistreated me. You know, we abandon each other. This nation in these 40 years not only put God to the test and just instigated his anger again and again, it would be over a thousand years and things were only going to get worse. They haven't hardly begun to sink to the depths that they will in the future. It's astonishing. 1 Corinthians 10. Let's finish looking at the scripture reading this morning. 1 Corinthians 10. I just want you to think, when you really think about even just Romans, doesn't that just enlighten the value of reading the Old Testament? Doesn't it make it relevant to think how much this equips me to know God and serve my brethren with just a greater ambition and greater understanding? 1 Corinthians 10. Romans gives us the side... The Old Testament teaches you to love with persevering hope when we see God in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 10 warns us in a different direction. The book of Numbers specifically also warns us to understand sin and abstain from sin with greater fear and reverence. 1 Corinthians 10, let's read this again through verse 14. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. 
Now, listen to this again. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Uh, That's the lifting of the bronze serpent that Jesus references. Verse, Verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, again, listen closely. Now, these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to, and this is a helpful note, not escape, endure it. Therefore, my brethren, flee from idolatry. So finally, seeing how God disciplined Israel, how he interacted with them, God was developing the nation through discipline. You know, the generation that came after the wandering generation, probably one of the greatest generations that ever lived in the history of Israel. You know, so God was very directly doing what was necessary to accomplish the fulfillment of his promises, to cultivate faith, to cultivate trust and dependence on him. And so when we see God disciplining Israel, it should be accomplishing the same thing in us that it did with that generation that witnessed it with their own eyes. So verse 6, we need to remember desire is the door, it is the gateway into the heart. And so remember with James chapter 4, we talked about that some months ago. But with our desires, either we're opening the door for Satan to plant deception or we're leaving the door open and opening the soil of our heart for God to plant and cultivate truth. The generation that came out of Egypt were giving God no opportunity to cultivate truth and to build faith. And so God would do it his own way, and his purpose would absolutely stand. And so we have to learn to not crave evil things. A helpful way to think about this is there is a danger to desire that is not being directed by God. When our desires are submitted to God, when they're directed to God, that's a very good thing. God created desire, but God is the one who exclusively understands how to rule our desires to preserve what is good and what is true. And devotion, verse 14. Numbers teaches us the value of being devoted to the Lord. When they came out of Egypt, you know, you imagine it's, it's great news. We're free from slavery. But it's like they thought this was just supposed to be a party. You know, we're free and that's it. We're free. But God had a greater purpose. The purpose of the promised land wasn't just to go and be liberated toward independence and enjoy the, uh, the abundance of the land. The point of the land was it was meant to be a place where God could securely dwell with his people and develop them for the coming of Christ and the redemption of the world. That's what that land was. Abraham understood that back in his day by faith. So it wasn't just about getting good food, big grapes that you hold on a stick. 
It was about learning to desire God and learning to love him so that he could work in them to redeem the world through them. That's where we'll stop the lesson for this morning. So in January, Lord willing, we'll be picking up at the beginning of Numbers. I hope this builds not only your anticipation for the value of this study, but just helps to even enlighten the beauty of how incredibly interconnected the Bible is in its focus on Christ and what Christ brought into the world and has made available to us. We have such a resource in the Bible and learning to explore and understand God's character through the Bible is one of the greatest joys God has given us here on earth. If you're here this morning and there's anything that we can do for you so that you can inherit all the blessings that God has poured through Christ into the world, it can be yours this morning if you are convicted in, in Christ to know him and to desire for salvation to come into your life. Um, if you believe in Jesus as Lord, if you confess him as Lord and repent of your sins and are baptized for the remission of your sins this morning, God will give you the Holy Spirit and fulfill his promises toward you. If there's any other need that you have to bring before the church, please bring it forward.